Facebook is one of the biggest and most effective marketing platform on the planet. It's huge. Almost everyone you know is on Facebook and quite a number of brands and businesses are spending millions of dollars to advertise on it, including small startups, mom and pop shops, local restaurants, and even churches. You can spend as little as you want and target specific audience you want at the micro level. But the problem is this. Most people have no clue how to run adverts on Facebook. They either double, waste a lot of money, or hire someone else to do it for them. So my team put together a short course to help you. It's called Facebook Ads Mastery Program. It's a comprehensive ebook and a video course on how you can launch and manage profitable Facebook ads campaign for your business. And we made it super affordable too. For less than $10, you can have access to this course. Go to www.backchannel.africa forward slash Facebook mastery. If that URL is too long, you can just go to the show notes of this podcast and click on the link and get access to the course. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Doting, coming up today on Building the Future. Always hold people to account. Yeah, if we've said this is how this office needs to function and these are the checks and balances we put in place irrespective of how good the intentions of the person in the office is if we allow the person to do things outside of the checks and balances that are put around that office then that person will see all the other checks and balances as unnecessary yes This episode is brought to you by Flutterwave. Flutterwave Air banks and businesses build secure and seamless payment solutions for their customers. It is the trusted payment partner for over 30,000 businesses that operate globally, including Flywire, Arikair, Uber, Jumia, SME Market Hub, Booking.com, amongst many others. To discover how Flutterwave can help your business, go to Flutterwave. My guest today is Tunde Leye. Tunde is a super interesting fellow that I got to meet through his book. Again, I want to really say thank you to a mutual friend, Feyifawa Amy, who introduced us. But Tunde is the author of an interesting book called Afonja De Rice. When I said in my podcast that I want to be interviewing not just tech founders or entrepreneurs, I want to interview thought leaders, authors, writers, people who are shaping conversation. And um, Tunde is one of those people. He's written a very interesting book that I read. And I'm a history buff. I love history. And the book is fiction, but it's written around historical fact. And we're going to be discussing that book at length. We're going to be discussing the history and the impact of that history now and what it means for the future in terms of how we do things. So we're going to be deep diving into a lot of things. So today, welcome to Building the Future podcast. Thanks for having me, Doctor. You and I have been having conversation before we went live <laughs> and it looks like we're, there's so much quality stuff that we're discussing. I said, let's pause. Let's just go into this show now and talk about them. Absolutely. So you work in a tech company. You used to be a software engineer, you run a research firm, so you are actually an unusual person to be a writer. Uh, we're supposed to be having you down in codes or, or tech or, or launching a product or fine-tuning product and writing about it, but, but you spend maybe your spare time writing books. How did that come about? I've always been what you would call, call a polymath. I, I do 
a lot of things. I used to sing, if you knew me, you knew lag. When I was in University of Lagos, you would assume I would be a musician for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> I used to sing, do concerts and do all that while I was studying computer science in the school. And when I left, I, when I left school, of course, I, I lectured for a bit and then did um, banking and then did tech. And then I'm doing sales and um, relationship management in tech as the day job now. But apart from that, I also have a research firm that does data, SBM Intelligence is called, that does data research, market research and likes. And writing is my passion. When I say passion, eh, very heavy passion. I, I read a lot. I've always read a lot. I think that's the basis of all writing. Yes. And the writing just flowed naturally from the reading. I seriously started doing this during NYC when I had a lot of spare time. And then beyond that, I came back into Lagos and I wrote a children's book first. And then I started blogging. I blogged every week for three years. Got a lot of readership, a lot of um, you know, followership on the blog, about two million. What were you writing about in your blog? It, it was more chiclet. Chiclet is what they call it, pop, pop kind of culture of um, this thing. Finding hobby was the popular one. And then, you know, so it was about a babe in Lagos that was looking for a husband. I wrote in first person, so people thought that was a babe for a very long time. Interesting. <laughs> so you're writing like a diary. Exactly. And it was pretty interesting, 24 episodes. Then I moved to other others and I did, you know, for three years, every week. It was an interesting training process for me as well. Beyond that, I've published three other books. My Fondjari Rice is the fourth one. It's a long, convol- not convoluted, but it's been a journey of different paths, doing different things to get here. And I think one of the things I believe in life is maximizing all the potential you have. That's why I'm here. Hmm. So you started writing based on your reading habit and you wanted to just express your thoughts uh, through blog, which is a very good platform now to actually take your work out there. Absolutely. Which didn't exist about maybe 30 years ago. If you want to see a lot of people to see what you're reading, you have very limited outlets to do it. Either sure you do it through newspaper column. Yeah. Uh, and then it has to go through some gatekeepers or you actually publish it which again huge huge barrier of entry but now people can do it so on different platforms but you also took it for that you yeah. took it to writing books and publishing it before we delve into that book itself I wanted to talk about the process of actually publishing book in Nigeria and, and, and the challenges and also the opportunities that creates okay I like a word used there it was one of the words that I use a lot, gatekeepers. <laughs> in, in, in writing, there are gatekeepers and there's nothing wrong with having gatekeepers. I think a lot of times they ensure quality. Mm. But I think there's also the danger that the gatekeepers will um, stifle new voices. Yes. So in Nigeria, there are really two options you have as a writer. First is you get published by one of the traditional publishers. There are not a lot of them. And even traditional publishers don't have a very big scale. You know, it's not like if you go published by HarperCollins, for example, abroad, that's like global scale. In Nigeria, all the traditional publishers are also not so big scale. Or you self-publish. I chose to self-publish. But I chose to build my own audience first using the blog. So I, that's why I blogged every week for three years, from 2011 to 2014 or 2013-ish and built a very, very strong audience. And that was my entry point into writing books. So it was my blog audience that first started reading my books, buying my books, before I then began to back into, backward integrate into the rest of the 
traditional publishing, you know, family in Nigeria, so to say. So today, Afonda Rise is also self-published. Is it? Yes, it is self-published. I I registered a small publishing outfit to handle my publishing, obviously, but it's 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 still me that you know runs that publishing outfit, and it's been an interesting journey going through the process of being the writer, and then going through the process of actually assembling the product, finding a good ed- good editors, finding good graphics people, finding you know get fixing distribution to get into all the bookstores. We've not. The last book I wrote didn't get distributed as well as this one. This one we haven't launched it, and we've almost sold out the first print, one thousand copies we printed. Interesting. So it's um this is this one is has been amazing. It's it's been an interesting journey getting here. But I think that in Nigeria there are more options now. And what I encourage writers to do is put your work out there. Let the market tell you if your work is good or not. Take the feedback of the market, improve on it. It's just like doing a tech product. Do your first products, put it in the market, let the market give you feedback, improve your product, go back, improve, improve until you get a product that the market likes. And then, however, there's a danger. Writing is a bit um, deeper. So you cannot be pandering just to the market in your writing. You need to write the story you have. I don't know how better yes, to say it. You need it. to write from your from gut. Your gut from, the, from deep inside you. Yes. Not just pander to the market. Oh, the market wants this. Write it. No. You need to write. So finding that balance between what the market you're writing for wants to read and writing true to yourself is where you strike gold, so to say. Artistic gold, creative gold, and commercial gold. Interesting, interesting. So the other thing that I wanted to understand is this process of you self-publishing. Mm. It means that you have to commit your own capital. Absolutely. Your time into it. So Absolutely. Like if you go to a publishing, or a publisher will write to you, give you an advance, and then you have enough time to travel. <laughs> I'm not sure Nigerian publishers give advances. They don't, they don't give advances. <laughs> but then the, other, the flip side of that is, like you're having success now, mm. 80% or 90% of the profit will come to you. So yeah. you can have more commercial success from over on, on a net level, but then the distribution. So how do you see, I'm trying to ask this question based on somebody who is considering an old thought, considering mm-hmm. my work is good and there's some publishers looking at it. Should I go with them or should I self-publish? What does it take to self-publish in terms of cost? In terms of financial, I think the first thing I should say about self-publishing, there was a time when there was a huge stigma attached to self-publishing your work in the literary circles where people looked at you like, oh, this is the person, these are the kind of people that real publishers have rejected. Yes. But these days, authors, in fact, even authors that are published by established publishing houses still have to promote their work personally the way a self-published person would. Unlike before where once you handed your work over to the publisher, they did all that for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so having said that, in terms of financial costs, hmm. let me put it in buckets. Writing the book will cost you something, especially if you're doing research. For writing Afonja, for example, I had to travel and go and look at places, look at things. I had to buy books for research. I had to get some journals, which were not cheap, you know, because they were a bit obscure. So I had to get some journals, subscribe to all sorts of JSTOR, all sorts of places just to get access to papers. Um, so that's in the writing process, research will cost you something. It's not a big cost. The internet makes it easier to research these days as well. That's the first, but that's about the easiest. That's the least costly part in terms of finances. It's the most costly part in terms of creativity, though. Mm-hmm. After 
the writing. You then need to go and begin to make your writing a product. So mm. the first step of that is that you need to get an editor. Editors are not cheap. <laughs> editors are not cheap by any stretch of it. So a good editor is not cheap. Do you have them on? You have them on retainer, or you just like no, no. It's a it's a project based one. So for when I wanted to draft on job, most of them charge per word. So what's your word count? Um, this is how much I charge per word, and you guys just do a multiplier and start um, uh, what's it called and start negotiating. So. And what I do is I use, in doing my work, I use guys that are as good as what you will get from a traditional publisher, which makes them slightly more expensive. So the person that edited for me for this one, for example, was a lady called um, Jite, who's managing editor at Farafina. Interesting. All right. So um, she she wasn't cheap. <laughs> Be, after editing, you then need to do graphic work, which is which will include the cover, cover design, I had to do three steps of graphic work. I first designed the Afonja head, which you, is... You design imaginatively based on what you think Afonja would, would look, look like. like. And using historical, for example, the facial marks, because it was an oil print, it had a very specific type of facial marking. Um, would mean that he has some markings on his head and his head will be bare and he will have a ponytail. So all of that went into the um, design of that head. Um, some Exactly. Somebody was <laughs> somebody was paid for that. To uh, do all of that. Because when I saw the cover of your book, I, I imagined the kind of work that would have gone into it where there's some details that, that came out there. Absolutely. Like, like the travel mark and, and, and his earrings and yes. uh, Shango uh, and the ponytail and, and the sternness in his face. And even the so I looked at it like this: they're creating a guy here, like almost like a comic of not comic of figure, but a, you're creating something an icon of, that represents a kakanfo, how he would look. Yes, back uh, in the day. And it's interesting. There's some details there that I saw as well. Um, maybe they were deliberate or they were just two things. One, I saw a bit of the landscape, the desert. You're very, you're very perceptive. <laughs> I, I can explain the cover. It's called okay. the Field of Arrows. Yes, that's what that's what that cover is called, and that landscape is what Illuring would have looked like back in the day. Interesting. And Afonja, if you read the account of how Afonja died, Afonja died standing. Yes, and it was shot with hundreds and hundreds of arrows. In fact, it was the arrows that propped him up, that made him stand. So that's that's what that represents, the field of arrows, and then he has Afonja in the back, in the foreground. So we had to do all of that design, and it was at a cost. Page planning is another costs that you would incur and if you want to get a good one is also not cheap at all um, beyond page planning you then do proofreading mm. after the person has page plan you want to proof and be sure that there are no errors or anything that the guy has left out there are people you pay for proofreading as well it doesn't it's the worst idea is to proofread your work as the author you will miss everything because you fill in words by yourself mm. after that you then need to find a printer that can produce the work properly Fortunately, what I've done is I've used the same set of people over time. So we've built a, an interesting relationship. Jute, I've done, this is not the first work she's editing for me. The graphics guy, um, I found him on Twitter. And then the person that did the rest of the cover design, Ayomidotun, um, we've worked on th three books together now. The printer, we've worked on four books together now. Yeah. You know, and it's all Nigerians, fortunately. I've used um, another editor before, Kemi. Kemi is based in the UK. She runs a company called Reaccentuated, 
kudos editor. So I'm saying that all of those costs you'll need to bear if you're self-publishing. And these are in uh, thousands of dollars? In, uh, yes. Ed, uh, I mean, an editor will charge you somewhere around, don't let me reveal it, it's costs, but it's, 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 it's four digits dollars. If you dollarize it, um, printing is dependent on what you want to achieve, really. Proofreading is also powered. Cover design and graphics, it's not as expensive as editing, but it's still yeah. somewhere six figures in Naira. So all of that... And it, it's something. It's something. So, so to me, I think we're still going to deep dive into the into the book itself, but uh, there is a cost that you... If you want to do self-publishing, but you're taking a risk, yeah. right? And you, that your work is good and you're going to recoup back your money. Absolutely. And, but more than that, there's a deep-seated thing about authors that you want your work to be read and, to, and your ideas to be out there. And, and you've done this about four times, so you probably you've iterated and no fine tune the process. Well, let's go into what went into Afonja, the mm. book itself. Um, what, what brought up that idea of you writing an historical event in, in a fic- with fictional conversations? I think it's a stream, multiple streams of things. Typically in life, there's really never one thing that brings you to a place. They look, a couple of conversations and events bring you to a place. First stream is that is this. Sometime I'll be talking to friends of mine and we'll be discussing, and I, I like history a lot, but I find that when we discuss foreign history, everybody seems to know what's, you know, when the World War was fought, the Battle of the Bulge, the Battle of Kursk, Stalingrad. We can talk about all those things. We can go even further back and talk about Napoleonic battles and these things. But the moment you talk about Kiriji War, everybody starts looking like, what is Kiriji War? You ask yourself, is there any other culture in the world where people fought a 16-year war? And there is no conversation about it. There are no lessons from it. There is no history around it. There's, there's nowhere else. You know, you ask yourself, is there anywhere else where you had an empire collapse or multiple empires rise and collapse and people have not studied them and the cultures extensively? You find that it, it's not. So I realized very quickly that there was a gap, especially in my generation. But if I spoke to my parents, Many things that they took for granted and knew. I'll give you an example. One day I asked my dad around, you know, our name. Once older people heard our surname, they could tell you immediately, um, you are either from here or here. Because they knew the history of the people that bore that name. But if you ask people in my generation, they, they didn't have any idea about that history. So I realized there was a gap. That was the first thing. The second thing was a friend of mine, we call him Sage Sage. He took a journey and just went around the Southwest and, you know, began to tell, we had discussions about the things he saw. And I realized that there was so much in Yoruba history that is right before us. But because we don't have, you know, recognition comes from pre-knowledge. If you don't have pre-knowledge, you pass that thing. You pass that road, you pass that hill. But you have no pre-knowledge of what it meant, and so you just pass it, you know. And that conversation also birthed something in me. And then I began to read, began to research, and I began to see rich, rich, rich stuff. And I, in the process of researching, I, I, I laid my hands on, you know, papers that have been lost to many people, obscure. And I read them, and I realized that no, there's a lot that that needs to be done here. And so I began to re- write the story now. Why I arrived at doing a fiction and instead of a history work was, I asked myself, the foreign history, the 
the ones that I remember the most, I read stories about them, not just the history, I read stories about them, you know, fiction. Like I remember one, the story about the Russian Revolution. What made the details stick with me was a fic- a film that I watched and, you know, they fictionalized. There was a character, two characters that were in love and they played. So I realized that story sticks with us for longer. If you look at um, Things Fall Apart, Achebe's Things Fall Apart, the the period in history that he captured has become so seminal that a lot of books that are written about the history of the Igbo today centers around that type of period simply because Achebe captured that period so eloquently in story. True, and, and a lot of authors have tried, have done that actually, which is fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. you, I can look at what you did actually, you even stuck more to the truth of the story than, than a lot of authors that have tried to do that, which again, you have totally right. One of the best ways in which to capture history is to uh, tell stories, and some of them have a fiction around it. I think um, William Shakespeare did that. Absolutely. Julius, Julius Caesar. Caesar and Henry VIII, and he did a lot of that well. Um, um, Chimamanda did that well with um, uh, Half of the Yellow Sun. Sun. did a fantastic job with uh, the, the Death, Death and the King's, King's Horseman. And, but you actually, when I, I was expecting that, I was expecting some kind of uh, a fictional character who lived maybe in a just household who witnessed the story, but we are looking at his or her own story, but from uh, historical settings. Mm. But you actually told the story, what you was fictional about what you did, and some artistic and creative uh, liberties. liberties that you took were just around the conversations mm. rather than the series of events themselves. Absolutely. Some of the series of events that you shaped a bit, but they were, in most of them, really, really true events. And I'm, I've been fascinated with history since my secondary school days when I started reading a lot around the history of Nigeria and 1900 or before then. What made me to deep dive into Yoruba history particularly was the work of Samuel Johnson, which uh-huh. you said I was part of the stuff that you, you studied for this book. And I find that time very, very fascinating. So I have to go back and read Samuel Johnson's book again <laughs> in preparation for this podcast. And we're going to deep dive into that. But let's start with how you started the story. Okay, started the story. And by the way, I just want to warn people again that we're going to be saying a lot of Yoruba expressions in this in, on this podcast. We're going to be saying some words in Yoruba um, just for people that don't understand Yoruba. You started with the setting that creates a tension. Mm. The tension, which every good book should start with anyway. The tension of the death of Allah Finya Biodun. Yeah. The requirement of the tradition that is a more hard to go with. Now, I'm not sure whether you took liberty there, whether that culture existed before then, uh, because Abiyanu was a, a another Alafin's son, was Yeah, it but it wasn't Aremo of that Alafin. It Alafin's. wasn't Aremo. So, was it, was it traditional Aremo had to die? Because I knew that issue of Aremo dying with the Alafin, the Aremo, the crown prince, yeah. became the subject of another war many about hundreds of years or 100 years later. Kurumi's War. Kurumi's War and Ijai and Ibadan War. That was the real issue of that war in yeah. the 1860s or 1830s. But you took that stuff into Abiodun's uh, death period. and period. Why did you start with that tension? I think first thing is, one of the things I did with Afonjadu Rise was I used the history as pillars and then built a house around the pillar. So you're building the foundation, you're building... So the history formed the foundation and the pillars. If you died in history, you died in the book. If you killed somebody, you, ki- you killed that person in the book. What will change, as you will see, was that rather than just seeing your death as a historic event, you will see it as actions, the scheming of people, 
um, the thing that led to it will be things that we recognize very, very well today, in, even in our polity, you know. Now, RMOs were required to die at that period. There's a period that led to Bashan Uga, where you had a series of nine, what you call tyrannical alafi. And what, what happened around or before that time was, there was that law where the RMOs used to be very, very integral to the tyranny of their fathers. And what people then began to say was, if this guy would reign with their laughing, let him die with their laughing as well. Right. So that was part of the requirements, cultural requirements. And it's a, it was a norm in Yoruba culture where people would accompany. So you had some people, by the virtue of their office, because they were in close proximity and could harm their laughing, they tied their own life to the life of their laughing. So when an alafi dies, whether they are the ones that killed him or not, they, they have to die. They have to die. Well. So it's a check and balance. It's a check and balance to ensure that you don't kill their laugh. If you're an Aramo, you say, my father is not dying. You know, let me help him along. Which were the rumors that were in place when Alaf and Abiyonu died that, look, this man did not die a natural death. He was actually helped along by his Aramo. But why would the Aramo do that knowing that there's an existing tradition that he has to die with his father? Because Abiyonu's period was when Bashan Ruga was defeated. And so there were a lot of changes that were happening around that time. And I, the Aremo would have felt that he could push his way through if he could get the support of the Oyomisi. Oyomisi being the council that would make the king. And if he had gotten the support of the Oyomisi, he would not have had to die. Interesting. But unfortunately for him, he, he, he wouldn't get their support yeah. because they stuck to tradition at that time. And they didn't strict stick to tradition because they loved tradition. They stuck to tradition because they had their own agenda. These are points that people need to remember. When people make arguments in our politics today about, oh, this is how we have always done it, or this is tradition, you must always realize that people conveniently use tradition to further their agenda sometimes. It's, that's an interesting note, actually, to ask my next question about a lot of central characters in the book, and quite a number of them. Afonja, actually, in my opinion, was not the only strong one. There are quite a few characters that ran through the book. And what I saw, the thing that ran through, everybody had their own agenda. Mm-hmm. Everybody was pushing for something. And what made that possible was the system of governance in Oyo. Absolutely. Then, which creates checks and balance. And uh, it's almost like the Constitution of America where the, the executive arm of the government is checked by the, by the judiciary and the judiciary by the legislative. Legislate. You have the Alafin, the, the president, the figurehead, the most powerful, supposedly, checked by the Oyomisi, who you call the legislative arm of the government. And you have the military arm of the government led by the Afonja. And then you okay, and then your Yomis is led by the Bashan, right? And then you also have some little provincial powers mm-hmm. by some way or the other who also have some influence. But then let's talk about how you said that in the book because one of the key things that made this book, uh, that made the story in the book, is the, is the ambition of all of these forces. Absolutely. Of the, someone who wants to become the Areonoka Kanfo, who is the head of the, of, of, of the generals. And you have the ambition of an Alafin who wants to be powerful and control things. And you have the ambition of the Oyomisi who wants to check their Alafin and even control the Areonoka Kanfo as well. It looked to me that that system could have worked if everybody was checking each other, but it seems that there was some overambition and some expectation mismanagement that happened. Mm. And you use that as a contest for the book. Absolutely. So at the point where Oyo, in its history at that time, 
a couple of things had changed, but what happened was that the players did not realize that those things had changed. I'll give you an example. At the beginning, the other thing was the military leader. He was the supreme leader. At the very beginning. At the beginning of Oyo, the Oyo Empire. The when Shungo, you had Shongo, Ajaka, and all of those guys. They, the Alafin would lead the army in battle at that time. The Oyomisi were chiefs that followed him and checked him as well. But the Alafin was very strong. Now, and is that because, just to cut it there, is that because the Alafin, one of the sons of Odudu, I know, the, the first Alafin was, was he Oromeo? Oromeo. And he was a warrior. Yes. He left Odudu as house in Ife and was expanding the Yoruba uh, King's empire um, was going about maybe fighting for war for profit and it was getting a lot of kingdoms that way. So the first Alafin was a warrior. Mm-hmm. So, and then when he came back, it became the one that owned, every other person divided the kingdoms and then he gave him, okay, you are the Alafin and he became the Alafin, but it was very powerful. So the Oyo the as a republic so started as a military frontier. Was that, that, that's, that's correct. And you will see in the organization of Yoruba towns, the basic elements are the same with what you had in Oyo. So you would have a Bale, who was essentially what they are laughing was. You would have the Balogun and the Otsu and the Osi and all of those, which was essentially what the Oyomisi was. And then you will have the Oboni, and you have Oboni in the Yoruba town, in, in, in Oyo as well, that checked the Oyomisi. Interesting. And then you would have the hunters. The hunters were usually the military force in the village. In a, in a normal, regular Yoruba town, who would be, I can't remember the title of the guy that led the hunters now, but in the same way, in Oyo, you would have the military. What essentially happened was Oyo became an expansionist Yoruba town and began to conquer its neighbors. Now, at the beginning, the checks and the balances were okay because the wealth of everybody was derived from the metropolitan town. So the Oyo Missy was strong enough to counter the Alafin because, I mean, the Alafin was not significantly more wealthy than the Oyomisi and all of that. But as time went on, as the empire expanded, there were new frontiers of wealth. And the, the people that were placed in charge of those places, they were called the Ajele. Mm. The Ajele were slaves of the Alafin many times. And Ajele were the ambassadors. Yes. And they were loyal directly to the Alafin. So they would collect taxes in those places and remit directly to the Alafin. What that created was a situation where the Alafin became exceedingly more powerful than his Oyomisi that was meant to check him. Interesting. And as time went on, what then happened was we began to have that period of tyrannical Alafins because they were significantly more powerful than the Oyomisi. The Alafin then created a frontier army led by the Areo Nokakanfo. The Alafin that created that um, this thing was called Ajagbo. St- Ajago was still somebody that would go out to fight battles and it was said that he used to send out four contingents he would send one under himself he would send one under the Bashon, one under the Kakanfu and one under I can't remember the Unikoi but as time went on it was said that the Alafin stopped going to war and the power of the Alafin began to diminish and it became is that a military power or his wealth? military power military but power. his wealth still went up because the Ajeles were remitting to him and they became tyrannical. What then happened was Bashonruga rose up to fight the tyranny of the Alafin. And that is a local tyranny because Alafin was, uh, has always been tyrannical to every other to person, every, no, but no, not in the capital. Not in the capital. What happened was the Alafin was no longer being checked properly. But, and if you read the history of those nine Alafin, 
um, you will find them doing things that today you will consider crazy. Even within the norms of the Oyo Empire were considered crazy. For example, an Alafi that called down fire into his own Afi, or an Alafi that was rejected by the Oyo Missy and refused to leave the throne. Those kind of things were inimical and were not you know, in conformity with the expectations of the empire. Bachon Ruga arose as a champion of the people and a champion of the Oyo Missy to bring a balance. And what Bashan Rugard did was he replaced all the Ajeles with Ajeles that were loyal to the Oyomisi. And that's this, that became the source of the Oyomisi's new power. And that was how he was able to replace the Alafins and replaced four. And he became a, he became a tyrant as of, well. Unfortunately, became a bigger tyrant than all the Alafins combined. And then what then happened was that the Alafin Abiodun now allied with the military power of Kakanfo, Oyabi, and they defeated Bashanruga. What then happened was the Oyomis's power was depleted totally. And the power went back to the Alafi. So the, but the Alafi thought, he, he actually really went to the Kakanfo. But at this time, that was why at this time when this book was starting, the real power in the empire, military, and in fact in wealth and all of that, lay in the hands of whoever became Kakanfo. Let's pause there and then there's so many uh, ways in which we can this what you just talked about now and there's so many reflection of that in our in our not too past history in Nigeria. Absolutely. <laughs> where we, there's some comparison there. So someone who rose up to become the voice of the people to, mm-hmm. to check some tyranny of, of an Alafin. And he became a tyrant himself, replaced for Alafin, killed them. And I mean, the historical account of Bashar al was horrible. His sons were killing people mm-hmm. indiscriminately in, in, in the outer towns. He himself was, Alafin had to come to him and bow to him in the morning. And he, and he killed any Alafin at just, just not liking the guy. And he just he killed an Alafin's daughter. Killed Alafin's daughter, killed Alafin, made Alafin. To, to die. Then when Abiyarin came, Abiyarin was quite wise and, and was adapting to him until, until he got his own time to be able to partner with Oyabi to get rid of. Even then, Bashanunga was hold. I mean, his power was his waning. Power was waning, yes. When they were able to get rid of him. But then the Alafin lost power because of the person he brought in. You can look at that with Nigerian uh, 1960 history where there was the government was parliamentarian. And there was a bit of issues uh, with the Southwest Yoruba fighting mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. Uh, having wet here. And, and, and then some military, young, revolutionary, idealistic military young guys felt we need to check the power of the corruption in the center because the whole country was going to, 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 to become a basket case mm-hmm. with, the Northern, with the Northern People's Party almost becoming the, the only party because normally the, all the regions check each other. Yeah. But the Southwest, which was one of the most powerful, was breaking apart and, and, and there was a, the faction of the party was aligning with the Northern, Northern People's Con- Congress. And these military guys came over and planned a coup, killed the, killed the prime ministers, and they became like your Bashan and Gap. But then within a very short time, they, they became worse. The, the military that came back, uh, that took over after that, became worse. And this, this young guys lost the coup, but then the military guy that took over from the politicians were now our own Bashan and Gap. And they were in power for about 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny how the, the history repeated itself. And you can almost see that with countries like Zimbabwe as well, where the Basharunga <laughs> came out. Mugabe. <laughs> Mugabe came out and said, I'm going to fight the country. We started well, but became a tyrant towards the end. And again, it's not only African, by the way. How people can learn from history such that somebody can 
be able to apply the lessons of history and not allow that to, to, to be repeated in a bad way. I think the first thing that this shows is that power, absolute, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when people begin to take liberties, once you allow those liberties to continue unchecked, they take more and more. And that's ex- exactly what you saw with the military. That's what you saw with Bashar al He began to take smaller, smaller liberties until he got to a point where he could demand for the daughter of the Alafi to be his wife. And when he was displeased with her, he killed her and said, your father cannot do anything. You know, So the key thing is that there are checks and balances and the people that are supposed to carry out checks and balances in any polity. And what I tell people is every polity that evolves always evolves checks and balances. What happens is that some people get to abuse those checks and balances. But every polity, Yoruba polity, um, Sokoto Caliphate polity, Boronu, um, Kanuri Empire polity, every polity, Igbo um, village system, there were always checks and balances that were steeped within the culture of that um, polity. What happens when you see things become funny is when those checks and balances are abused. And then people make excuses for the person abusing the checks and balances because of exigencies and then say, okay, you can, you can continue. You saw it with Hitler as well. He, he was abusing checks and balances and people were saying he's trying to restore the glory of Germany until he became who he became. I always tell people, and it's my view, it's a slippery slope. Always hold people to account. Yeah. If we've said this is how this office needs to function and these are the checks and balances we've put in place, irrespective of how good the intentions of the person in the office is, if we allow the person to do things outside of the checks and balances that are put around that office, then that person will see all the other checks and balances as unnecessary yes. and begin to do things. So I tell people, irrespective of how, don't tear down walls that you are not sure why. They, if they said somebody needs to sign a check three times, or if they said before you can release money, it needs to go through the National Assembly and get National Assembly's approval. See, you might say the people in the National Assembly are stupid, but if I want to spend that money and the checks and balances are get the National Assembly's approval, I better get it, irrespective of how good my intentions are. Otherwise, if I spend that money the first time, for a good thing and people say ah it was a good thing then I'll spend it for something that is not so good not so good until I stop spending it for good stuff so you don't subscribe to this uh, to this notion of benevolent dictator where somebody uh, appropriate power to themselves but they use that power irrespective of the system broke down the system for good and people refer to people like Kagame Kuan Yun in Singapore as some as dictators to some extent but who I use that for to advance significantly beyond what the system would have allowed them to do. I call that dictator roulette because you can never really tell which dictator will turn out fine. In the period where we had nine horrible alafis in Oyo history, there were one or two of them that did good stuff. In spite of the tyranny that the office of the alafi had become, there were one or two of them that did good stuff. Yet, overall, people say, one, what was the reason why Ijaye fell and Ibadan did not fall? It was because of this thing. In Ibadan, it was merit-driven. There were checks and balances. And anybody, you could enter Ibadan as a slave and become the ballet of Ibadan yeah. very easily. Once you proved your mettle, in Ijaye, Kurumi was a tyrant. So for a while, it looked like Ibadan and Ijaye were at par. 
But what happened to Kurumi was that in his tyranny, he had killed most of his strong guys that feel, he felt were challenging to him. By the time he needed to fight, Ibadan was stronger because they had more strong people and they destroyed the Jai. So you, you are never really sure which dictator will be good. Instead of playing that roulette, I would rather a more checks and balances mm. process. That would, it might be a bit slower, but people refer to Kagami, but people forget that just across the border, there's Burundi, where they also had a dictator in Kuruzinza, who did not turn out the way Kagame turned out. Kagame could as well have been in Kuruzinza, and nobody would have been able to do anything. Kagame may still be in his, in his early Mugabe phase. Mugabe was not bad at some point. It was later, it became bad. So you never can tell how a dictator will turn out. I, I like the example you gave of Ibadan and Ijae, where Ibadan optimized for a solid, strong system. Absolutely. Ijae optimized for a strong leader. Mm-hmm. And and where you have that kind of stuff, it's a strong leadership, strong personality will always fail you because humans are humans and we are weak and we optimize for our own selfish interests most of the time. Absolutely. And, but when you have a strong system that is stronger than personalities, personalities will only make it better. A good personality we enhance the system and enhance the society as against a personality, strong personality with a weak system. Absolutely. And, and a bad person, bad personality, we, 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 we destroy it. And we can see that example in the United States now, uh, in my own <laughs> view, uh, with, with a very uh, questionable president, but in a very strong system that is given that checks and balance. And, and, and I like that example. We, we can go back to history and look at Ijaye and Ibadan. And, and how those two worlds clashed. And what won, because Kunimi was the Are Onoka Kanfo, yes. was more powerful In fact, than any say, of the leaders. They will say, Are Onkpye, Olon Difa. Tifa Bajeta Revani Bekongo. In other words, you, you say they say Ara is calling you. Mm-hmm. You say I'm I'm doing my morning devotion, I'm mm-hmm. worshipping Ifa. Which Ifa are you worshipping when the Ara is calling you? That was how yeah. Kunumi kind of was, Kunumi was. And Kunumi could actually demand that the Allah should be should, should kill them himself. Yes. That's how powerful he was. So Kunumi was more powerful than Ogumala and all his chiefs. Absolutely. But what Ogumala had going for him were people that were dedicated to a system and strong people in their own right. Whereas Kunumi had, like he said, Destroyed all this, uh, killed all this, all the poten- all his contemporaries and potential leaders, and you have to, and that's a good lesson in history about build a strong system, mm-hmm. build a very very strong system because good personalities will enhance that society through that system. Let's go back to the story again, Afonja, and one of the key things I found fascinating was Afonja was a looked to me like a guy who is dedicated to the culture. No, he has a strong ambition. Uh-huh. But he's a very culturally aware guy. He was a very culturally aware guy. He wanted to actually respect. He wanted to be respected, but he wanted to still. He he, he loved Oyo. He, he he liked that system of governance that is an laughing and he himself as the as the the most powerful. But he respected that system. But. The, there was lots of circumstances that led to him fighting the system that he really, really worshipped. There seems to be something there about how ambition can lead people uh, to the... And, and again, Konami was a victim of circumstances. Uh, he would have preferred to just be a Sarayana Kakan for fighting the... The, the, the Bariba or the... the Bariba. Just been, but then there were lots of circumstances that led to, to that. So let's talk a bit about that. And, and some of the characters like Aole, who was very selfish from the beginning, who was... What's the right word we can use for him? Who is 
petty. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the roles of ladies in this stuff, by the way, which I, I want to question you about why you, why you <laughs> place ladies that way. But then, um, it's petty. So, Kunumi was in history. I mean, he, he, he was a victim of the history of that time because he would have just been a very good array mm-hmm. for, for a long time. I, I think, first thing, eh, Afonja's role, if you read, if, when you read the story, you see how his character evolved. At the beginning, he was the kind of guy that would have his counsel, con- do consultations, listen to people. And debate vigorously. And debate vigorously before he made decisions. Towards the end, he was not like that. He became the one who could not be questioned. That way, it got to a point where he banished his brother for questioning a decision he took, you know. If you, if you read, one of my favorite scenes in the book is where Aole meets Afonja for the first time. When Aole was going through his coronation rites and Afonja came to present his gifts and he said, walk with me. Let's have a conversation. You see, that singular conversation could have changed the course of the story. Interesting. If Afonja had given the Alafin the answers he sought. So you would have seen that this Alafin is insecure and mm-hmm. he, he needed validation. He didn't feel maybe he was the right person. He was just brought in for a province. He didn't know he was going to be a laughing. Maybe he didn't feel he was the right person. So he saw you, Afonja, who is more powerful, who is also an oil prince, as a threat. And what he was looking for in that conversation was, Afonja, will you be loyal to me? Will you be a threat or a loyal person? But in that conversation, unfortunately, Afonja's convictions showed up. When the king asked him, what is more important, the Alafi or the empire? There was, a, there was an answer the Alafi was looking for. But Afonja gave the right answer, which was the empire. That's why you could send the Kalabash to an Alafi and the Alafi would abdicate and commit suicide. Because the Alafi was not more important in Oyo culture yeah. than the empire. And that was the answer that Afonja gave. But what Aole heard was if I need to do away with you, I don't mind. As long as it is for the good of the empire. But let's pause there. Let's pause there. We've talked about a strong system as against strong personality. Uh, and let's just apply that question to contemporary settings where a president or even an MD is, de- is demanding personal loyalty mm. as against a loyalty to the company from its subordinates or from a CEO. A CEO saying... Will you be loyal to me as a person or will you be loyal to the cause of the company? What should a CEO say at that point, knowing that that person is insecure as a person? That's a difficult question. <laughs> I mean, what what the COO... Hmm. So the CEO would have acted like Afonja. But a good CEO, A right? good CEO would, would have, I mean, made it. But I also understand that, you know, in imperial politics which is not that much different from boardroom politics, <laughs> you may need to tamper what you say with what you do. If Afonja had given him that answer, he would have made Afonja kakanfo. If Afonja told him, Alafi is more important than the empire. He would have lied about his real convictions. But then when the robber meets the road, like Alafi is saying, do this, and which is like going, go and sack Apomo, which is against the norms of the tradition, it's not in the interest of the empire. Afonja went, but then at that point, if he resisted the Alafin, the Alafin said, but you promised me that you're going to be loyal to me. Very above true. Above the empire. It's, it's a dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a, it's a strong, it's a serious dilemma. That's why I said that Afonja was in the wrong place in history, right? If Although he had his own insecurities and his own problem with yeah. Alimi, which we're going to delve into quickly, uh, which probably led to his downfall. Uh, uh, again, the, the empire had issues and he, he accelerated the fall of the empire, but he himself, he himself actually fell because of his own insecurities and his own personality mm-hmm. and his naivety with Alimi. And, and, and again, that time in history, a lot of things were changing. I like the word you used that. A lot of things were changing. Systems were changing. Empires were falling down. And there was an expansion of a caliphate coming from the north. Yeah. And there was the restlessness of the provincial council who were feeling the heavy weight of the of the Oyo Empire and they needed change. Akwanja was just at the epicenter of all of that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether I could have done anything right. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't have the answers for him. Quite <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. I, I'm not sure how much more right he could have done because I mean, when, when he was going to fight um, against Toyeje, the man was coming to kill him. He needed to win. And so he called on the slaves to come. You might look at it and say, it's a bad move. Why did he call the slaves? But the guy needed to win. And he looked at it and said, this is the only way I can win. But calling the slaves opened a new Pandora's box where after the fight, the slaves went back to their master's houses to go and behave like masters. Which is why one of the reasons I wrote this book, the way Afonja is painted in Yoruba general history is, is the evil guy that opened up the empire to the northern invasion and all of that. But people tend to forget the circumstances around him at that period and the things that made his decisions have the kind of impact it had. If he had had a different alafin, things would have been different. For, if Abiodu had been his alafi, things would have been different. But Abiodu too was looking, would have been look, looking for an, an, a kakanfu that is subservient to him. Sure. Um, if you look at the two kakanfus that Abiodu had, if you remember, Afaja referred to them as, please, these ones are not... They're not uh, they're strong not worth, They're not worth being called the kakanfu. So there was Oyabi that helped Abiodu defeat Ga. But Oyabi died around when Abiodu was being enthroned. He selected two kakanfus in his lifetime, Abiodun, but there was not much of note that was said about those kakanfus. They were not very strong men. Because Abiodun's reign was very peaceful. Very peaceful. In fact, he lost He lost the first for the first time to Dahomey. He lost the first war to Dahomey. To Dahomey. He lost to Dahomey in his, during his reign. So, you could you could imagine that Afonja was coming in to say, look, the only kakanfu I respect before now is Oyabi. These two people that call themselves Kakanfo before me, they're not worth the leopard skin that they sit on. And he came into the office with that kind of mindset that I need to prove that the office of the Kakanfo is not... Unfortunately, he had an laughing that was like Aule, who also had people around him in the Oyomisi that had their own agendas. One of the things that was happening at that time was that the slave trade, because of what was happening from the north, the Sokoto Caliphate, before the Sokoto Caliphate took over, the supply of slaves that Oyo sold at the coast used to come from the north. Hausa states would trade slaves with them. The Nupe would trade slaves with them. The Kanuri would trade slaves with them. So they had a plethora of supply of slaves. They also had a plethora of supply of horses. When the Sokoto took over, one of the things that they did was to choke trade to the southern infidels. So they were, they, 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 a, a good chunk of the slave supply that Oyo had for their trade stopped. A good chunk of the horses 
that they had for their military also stopped. And Oyo did not really raise horses. They always, they usually bought their war horses from the north. If you noticed somewhere in the book, one of the key preoccupations that Afonja had was where am I going to get horses? Yeah. Because the supply of horses were was not the way it used to be before. Mm. When after Sokoto, Sokoto rose. So again, I'm just going back to today's, so we've really got a lot on this episode, and, I, and I'm sure it's going to be a long one. I was I was conscious of that. I want us to go into some of the characters and and, and the role they played in in all of this story. And I'm going to start with um, one major guy, Alimi, a very very smart conniving, scheming personality who ended up, uh, I'm sure, I'm hoping you're going to write this, uh, a sequel to the book. That's and, a sequel. And, 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 his, and his role in that. But we, we, we see the, the the relics of that in Lauren today. Like yeah. When I tell people, actually I was telling someone recently that, you know, we still have a, a relic of over 200 or 300 years old of colonialism in Nigeria, in Lauren, where the minority... Uh, Rulers are from a different tribe, and the majority from are from, are from, are from the, another tribe. The rulers of Ilorin are Fulani stock, although they speak Yoruba now. They are like, they, 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 they they're Yorubanized, I mean. but Fulani stock, and they still that. Normally, in a Yoruba town, the, the head is Oba or Bale, but in the, in a, in a Yoruba city like or town, in Ilorin, you have the Emir as the head, yeah. and you have every other person as Yorubas. And that was that was what happened after Fonja uh, was killed. Now let's talk about Alimi and his ambition. And his, you painted it in the book as uh, a religious uh, crusade. And uh, his, his real ambition was to expand the caliphate. He was promised an empire. And he was promised a kingdom yeah. or emirates. He didn't, and this is his own way of claiming. And everything he was doing was towards that agenda. Whereas in some cases, you can look at the history that it's just a guy who was, uh, okay, he was a scholar, he was there, and uh, Afonja loved him, he was given the right counsel because he was smart, but his ambition wasn't to become the king or to become the emperor. It, was, it just happened that he had this thing fell on his lap because the, the, the Jamar uh, became powerful and, and Afonja wanted to kill them, and then they had to fight. It was a defensive war. Because after I killed Afonja, he actually paid respect to his family and kept them. And and, and, and they moved to a place called uh, Kuo. Where? Kuo. Kuo. Afonja's, okay. I can't pronounce, I'm not sure about that's the correct pronunciation, but Afonja's family moved away from from Ilorin. Okay. To somewhere close by. Okay. So, but he, he didn't, because in those days, you, you kill anyone that will have, have any claim to the throne. Right, you you destroy the family like was done to Ashikba in the in the, in the first, but in, in, in the early part of the book that you mm. wrote. But you, you destroy anyone that can have any claim to family, like they did to Basham Nagar's family as well. But he didn't do that. So to me, there's a tension there. Is it really a religious fanatic crusader, or just somebody who uh, saw an opportunity and defensively defensively fought for it and then became the ruler? I I think the um, what I would call the error there is trying to fit the, the, the mindset of that period into this period. If you think about um, the person that started Sokoto Caliphate, Uthman Danfodi, the way and the manner in which he won his caliphate is very similar to the way Alimi won Ilori. Okay, so Uthman didn't come all the way from uh, Fort Jalan uh, uh, with a lot of army and conquered. He came as a conniving scholar and rose 
so in fact Uthman's family I'm reading something now the, the research I'm doing now is around how the caliphate started Uthman's family came from actually they, they were called Tor, what's that there Toronkawa no no not Toronkawa I'm trying to remember the the, the name of that um, Fulani tribe that came from Futajalon and it was his father was an Eternian traveler and then they came and settled somewhere around Gobert and he was a traveling scholar. Very similar to what Alimi Alimi was a traveling scholar who was invited to come to Ilori. Othman was a traveling scholar who was invited to come to Gobert and in fact he trained the person that became Emir um, Sultan of Gobert mm-hmm. when he started and they had this their migration from what's, what's that thing called now for Muslims Hijra where they moved from Gobert somewhere else and it was from there that the caliphate started now for them it was they were fighting for the expansion and the establishment of a pure form of Islam that was free of corruption that the Hausa Sultans had become and it was, and the way they would do is, he would give flags to people, and they would go and conquer places. And when they conquered the place, they become the emir of that place, paying allegiance very loosely to Sokoto. And that's exactly what Alimi was doing. He was one of the few people that, by by the time he was in Ilori, Uthman Danfodu had died. His son Bello had become the sultan. He was one of the few people that did not have land, and so he came to Elori to say let's expand in this direction but following the same a very similar template itinerant preacher why didn't he lead an invasion why, why didn't he lead an invasion hmm. which which was more efficient if you if you would for him if you think about Oyo in those days it was a cavalry based army but you had a lot of people from the, the northern side that were the ones that tended the horses the makers of ropes. So he had his army ready in Oyo. If only he could find a way to rally them to himself. And it was that opportunity that Afonja gave him. So from Alimi's perspective, he was furthering the jihad. Mm. That was his perspective. He was furthering the jihad. There's something in Islam that says that if you get to a place and you're outnumbered, you first behave in a peaceful manner, but the moment your numbers become... Um, enough to continue the jihad. You, t- you continue again. Interesting. And that's the model that he followed. If you had studied um, Danford, you and you remember that Laduba in the book was telling his brother that, look, I've heard about how these guys conquered these other places in Gobert and Kano and all of that. It's the same model. Even when they were going to conquer Kano, there was some Fulani in the court of the Hausa Sultan of Kano. And when they tried two times, they couldn't conquer, but it was only until those Fulani guys in the court of the, they were called Toronkawa that changed over that the jihadists were able to conquer Kano. Interesting. So it's it's the format. It's usually the way that the, the jihad will have gone. Let's talk about another interesting, super interesting personality in the book, character in the book, Aduke. Ah. This is pure fiction. It's the, fiction. The, the, the character. But you painted her like a Lady Macbeth. <laughs> she was the. I think she was pivoted to a lot of things. I mean, she had counseled Aole differently. If she had not pandered to his insecurity, uh, things could have turned 
because all I wanted to actually follow whatever Basharun Ashamu. Ashamu was telling him until the lady came to the picture. Why did you pay? Because there were a few other ladies like that, and, and this question was from one of my colleagues uh, who also read the book and sent me some question. Why did you paint some of the ladies that way? There were four strong female characters in the book. There was um, the Aremo's mother. Yes. yes. First, and she, she, she was, she played a very significant role in how the story went because if she had done differently, there would have been war in Oyo. There was Aduke, there was Jemima, and there was Labake. And then there was this, if that Ifa Priestess, Ifa Wemimo. Yeah, Faimo. If you think about it, she was Aule's rock. Before Aule ever thought he was going to be a, a, um, a laughing, if you remember the episode in Akbomu, yeah. where he sold somebody mm-hmm. and he was flogged and all of that, and she took action and dealt with the person and made everybody believe that it was her husband. If you think about it, she, all that she did from her perspective was to compensate publicly for her husband's weakness. Interesting. Her husband, in her view, would have been viewed as a weakling. So she cut somebody's tongue and silenced the person. Everybody thought it was her husband that cut the person's tongue. But she was the one that did it. And she let it off to be her husband so that people feared her husband more. You, you, you get the way her thinking is. She knows his weakness that this man is not the most decisive, is insecure, he might be perceived as weak, weak in a culture that required men to be strong. Yes. So she, in her view, was compensating for that. And all, if you looked at all of her, her advice, it was around, don't let them think you are weak. So it was projection of strength that she was trying to do. And exactly. Protecting him as a person. So it wasn't from malice or anything, it was from... Don't let them think you are weak. You must hold your ground. They are your advisors. So their role is to advise. It's your role to decide. But then she was doing, she was achieving the, the, the opposite effect because she was sitting with him in a court and she was interjecting in conversations, which is good for now. I mean, if you look at things from there, from, from a 21st century view, that's good. A woman should be, they're, they're, they're wise. They should be in that kind of conversation as well. You have a lady's perspective. Mm-hmm. But in that culture, lady being in the court with the husband, uh, the king was not, it's not projecting the husband as strong when the, when the, when the king is always deferring to his wife. So she was achieving the opposite effect in that, in that direction. Which happens a lot in reality where you assume that you are helping someone and you take all the actions with the intention of helping someone. So I'm speaking more to her intention now than to the effect of her action. Her intention was to help him, make him strong, and where she saw his weakness being exploited by others intervene. In the process of doing that, her actions actually exacerbated the weakness perception that people, weak perception that people had of him which is quite unfortunate. And that then further influenced the actions of people to act towards him in a certain way. So it became a vicious cycle where her actions influenced the people to act in a way. And because of the way they acted, she had to further, you know, act in that way. And it just continued to cycle that way. That was really the story of Aduke. For, for from her perspective, I'm trying to help my husband. It's a very powerful plot, actually, and I will encourage everyone. I think we spoke a lot here about the book. I'm going to everyone to really read the book. It's very easy to read. I find it easy. And we talked about the language that you use in the book, your tone of expression, the cadence uh, was 
deliberately simple so that mm. people can grab it without having to spend too much time. And I, and I find that fascinating because when I was reading the book, I was expecting a very uh, flowery, novelistic way of describing the, the settings, the, uh, a bit like uh, the way Chibi would write about it and describe things and I was expecting but I saw it very simple and easy flow in some cases I felt it's too simple but I was enjoying the story anyway but it was quite and then you also expressed so many so many um, proverbs proverbs uh, in the book and I, I would like you to speak into that why you okay. deliberately made it that simple and also express a lot of Yoruba proverbs not again sometimes when a chibi would write proverbs he would write it in Hebrew first and then try to interpret or even say some Hebrew expressions without interpreting it but you were transcribe is that not translating translating or writing the proverbs the way an, 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 a Yoruba person would say it in English yeah, absolutely without trying as much as possible not to lose the meaning of it for Achebe I recall that a good number of his proverbs were in English in okay. fact one of the ones that stayed with me the most was um, the one where he said let the eagle perch and let the kite perch and whoever says the other should not perch may his wings break you see in saying that he expressed a thought around accommodating each other's progress an English person will say something like the sky is wide enough for the birds, for everybody to fly without. But in Igbo, that expression is let the kites but let the good perch. In spite of writing it in English, you can express an Igbo thought. When we're talking, I gave the example of if I want to say focus, and I want to say it with the proverb in Europe, in, in English, I'll say something like you cannot chase two mice and catch any. You lose uh, both of them. That's an English expression, and I'm speaking English. So, it, But if a Yoruba person will say it, it will say, Ankorimejisagbedero. Mm. You know, and if I'm going to translate that to English, I might say you don't put two pieces of metal in a foundry to rot. Now, if I say it that way, even though I've spoken English, I'm expressing a Yoruba thought. And if you read it, that's why in some cases, you, as, as, you, as you observed, you are reading English, but you are hearing Yoruba yes. in, in, in book. And that's one of the things I set out to do. Um, because that's the way that, that I believe that language is dynamic and flexible enough to use it to express different cultures. Language is like a window into a culture. So if you express the culture properly, even if you translate it into another language, you will find the culture in the language that you're speaking. Two of my favorite writers, or two of my favorite stories, one of them is The Passport of Malam Ilam by Cyprani Quincy. And if you read the way he wrote in that book, very simple. Very simple narrative, but very powerful narrative. If you read The Concubine by Elechi Amadi, yes. he wrote around the same period that Achebe wrote. He wrote around the same types of story that Achebe wrote, but his language was simpler. And I, I, I enjoyed reading Elechi Amadi very much. So there are things I've picked from Mr. Achebe, for example. Um, things like the way he used proverbs and he used English and the cadence. If you read Achebe's writing, even though he was writing English, you are hearing Igbo. You know, the way he wrote the cadence, the rhythm, the the, the expression was Igbo, even though he was in English. I picked um, fortrightness and simpleness of expression from guys like Cipran Quincy and um, Elechia Madi. You know, I've picked a couple of things around how to translate without transliterating from yes. somebody like Mualesho um, Inka. He did a book, um, a translation of um, Dio Fagunwa's book. Igbo Rumale. Exactly. And he did um, A Forest of a Thousand. Even the title 
was a translation, the not forest, a translation. The forest of a thousand demons. Exactly. It was a translation, not a transliteration. Yes. So you can pick, for me, my view is, you, as a writer, you read a lot and you pick things from different writers and it, you find the expression coming out naturally in your own writing. That's, that's really what you've seen in Afonso. My, my view is make it simple, but be true to what you write. And even the conversations as well, because Yorubas do a lot of conversations mm-hmm. and, and traded words and use, use uh, proverbs to express themselves. Uh, Aule did not have time for that a lot. In the book. <laughs> it was, he wanted to get to the point. But there was a lot of proverbs going back and forth. And, and, and one, of, one of the key ones that actually that, that I saw here was, again, going back to what you said, um, which is a very popular Yoruba proverb, which is, Tino Batonlara. And you translated it as, as long as there are lice in a garment, there must be blood stains on the fingers, mm-hmm. on the fingertails, which you don't see that in an English language as an expression. It's, but it captures the it essence. It captures the essence of if there, is, if there is still a cause, then the effect will still be there. And we Absolutely. need to act on, on that, which is quite good. There are a few things that, again, we can go into, but I don't want to re- recap the book too much. I, I want to just eat on... Uh, on, on this thing about the Oyomisi influencing and trying doing a lot of trial and error, uh, trying to get a king that is not too powerful, a king that's powerful. Mm-hmm. What are your views about that in, in, the, in the contemporary politics that we have in, in, a, in a country like Nigeria and choosing our own Alafin or the king and the president <laughs> trying? Nigeria is about to go to another election again yeah. now. One of the things you find people generally do in elective systems is for some reason, they oscillate between the type of um, leaders that they elect. So I'll give you I'll give you an example of America, then I'll come to Nigeria. In America, they usually oscillate between a very cerebral president, and then they go to a hillbilly, and then they come to a cerebral guy. So you see, Bill Clinton was cerebral, George Bush was not cerebral, and then from George Bush they went to Obama, who is very cerebral, and then from Obama they went to. The extreme version of what it, <laughs> what, what it means to be cerebral. You, you get, so... What it means not to be cerebral, as I meant. For, for, for a lot of elective systems, it almost seems like the, the choice of people oscillates between a very strong leader and a weaker leader. And it, it's, it's almost natural because what you find is when they are going through the arm of a strong leader, they feel, you know, they feel the strength of that leader. But at some point, it begins to be... Relax for a small now and all of that. So by the time they're making the next electoral choice, they swing to the one that is not so such a strong leader. But by the time that not so strong guy too is getting those, ah, we need somebody that is. Does that express the weakness of humans? Uh, because uh, no, nobody has everything. Sure. Say. And, and most of the time, and I laugh when when when, people, when countries. Uh, so, so I live in the UK, and I, I also spent a lot of my time in Nigeria. I laugh when when we're going through election seasons, and and the expression of people and what they want. They cast this hope, and I see, and I follow American election. It casts hope on personalities mm. and things. And people fail. Everybody fail. No politicians. What there's one constant thing about politicians they will fail you. They will <laughs> fail in the promises that they've given to you. So they will do well. In many instances, some of them will do well, but they will always fail you. That's very constant. Mm-hmm. And I still find it fascinating that we people are still gullible. They still go for the, this guy is the real deal. He's the Messiah. It's the one I would change. This party will change everything. 
it's it's the way of um, human beings to hope and we need to hope we need to be able to hope it's what makes life bearable if you may however it comes back to what we talked about at the beginning where we said systems the reason why you can oscillate between strong weak like that like that and the realm will continue to move forward is because you have built behind these leaders these human beings systems so that when somebody that is good for the system comes in it will enhance it and it will move the country forward when somebody that is not so great the system will make sure that the damage the person can do is not so much also in leadership you have what you have what you call a wartime leader and you have a peacetime leader and a wartime leader may be a horrible choice at peacetime interesting so there's no leader that is good every time sometimes what you need is a wartime leader sometimes what you need is a peacetime leader Sometimes what you need is an expansionist leader. Sometimes what you need is stabilizing and conservative leader. So you hope to have like a good or your messy. I'm using figurative precisely now, to be able to decide what sort of leader do what we is need now. best for the realm. And they're not uh, selfish in their own. Uh, there's a lot of personal. Like in, in your book, you have the word that wish. I don't know how to place the guy. It's little finger. <laughs> I don't know whether he's looking for selfish ambition because he doesn't express that he wants to be something. It's just he just wants to be relevant and stuff. But you have the Bashar uh, Shamu who wants to be a bit controlling and he expressed that a lot. And there are other guys as well. But you hope that the collective kingmakers, <laughs> because every country has kingmakers. Absolutely. The collective kingmakers are acting in the best interest of the republic. Of the realm, yeah. That's what you always hope for. Everybody would have their personal interests. Waruda's main interest was he was he, he controlled the salt trade. In those days, salt was really important. And it's whoever will be on the throne, I will make sure that his salt trade was not interrupted, that he supported. So it's like, if you watch Game of Thrones, it was somewhat, somewhat like Littlefinger schema in the background that would swing to whoever looked most like winning you will see that he was the last person to leave there laughing you know he's he'll wait until it's clear that you're not winning before he moves to the winning side but ashamu you can't fault ashamu as well he lived through bashan Ruga and he knew how if you didn't balance these things you, you will notice that one of his biggest fears is I don't want to become another Bashanuga. Interesting. That was one of the things he kept expressing. Even when people were telling him, Give this tell this man to commit suicide now. Why why you kept saying that I I can, my office allows me to, but I don't want to become another Bashanuga that because I might start with good intentions, but if that becomes the solution I go to very quickly, I will always go to that solution. But he didn't also want there to be too strong a laughing after he had somebody like who had been strong and all. So what, what, I, what I keep going back to is that each of the characters fits into the philosophy that there are no people that are 100% good or 100% bad. There are people that have interests. Some of the interests are good. Some of the interests may not be for the good of the realm. Some of them selfish, some of them for the good of everybody. But what usually happens is that the interaction of the interests may result in good or bad. In this case, unfortunately, the interaction of many of the interests were not for the good of the realm. 
It's super interesting the book, and I like the way you capture some of those essence of that of that history of Afonja. Um, again, I was telling you before now. I have a personal personal uh, um, link to the, to the mm. story. My, my great grandfather was an Alafin, uh, Alafin Ladibolu. Um, I should have left for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's so funny. I used to think that okay, you cannot become uh, a Alafin. Uh, you don't have a claim to the throne if you are from the mother side. Because my my great grandfather was Alafin. His daughter was my grandmother. Uh, okay, so we always thought, that, okay, you can only become a laughing if you are from the if your if your father was the f- son or you're from the stepfather side. It's patrilineal. It's a patrilineal, but but you refer to that book. I mean, Afonja could claim could lay claim to the throne because it was like me. His grandmother was the was the was the daughter of an laughing. Right? But the person that thought that was Aule. The person that thought that was Aule. <laughs> actually, it's funny you said that though because my dad actually said that. Um, there's some laughing that have been laughing from uh, the matrilineal line. side. Yeah, that me or anyone, brothers could potentially, but it's going to be a very arduous one. You have to be, so let's say I'm a billionaire, for example, and you only hear that kind of billionaire, then I could be an your prince, but it's very far from what I'm. What I what I could what I would want to do, <laughs> what I will what I would aspire to do at all. But I, I find that because I've always grown up with the stories of my great grandfather was an laughing and he died in the nineteen forties. And his picture is quite quite fascinating. The stories of the laughing after him and the laughing and, and my uncle Buddy Yeshin who died in the sixty, and my my aunt would tell me that oral story about him and his reign. And even though Alafin's influence has reduced significantly now, but glory around it, from, especially from people from Oyo, mm-hmm. is super fascinating. The other part that I have to that story was you referred to Iwerele, which was actually part of the story of Afonja rebelling against the king. Yep. Because my mom is from Iwerele. My mom is a <laughs> princess, was a princess from Iwerele. And my, my grandfather, who died in 18 years ago, 2000, and he was the ballet of Iwere. And I so I'm, I'm in front of blue blood. You remember <laughs> blue blood? <laughs> <laughs> if you cut me through, you see blue blood. So I, I used to go to his palace and, and I remember having conversations with him about the history. And I wish a lot of things were recorded from him as well because he had so mm-hmm. much passion about the history of how Iwere started. They used to live in, on the hill. On the hill. And uh, very difficult to defeat. Yes, and and that was why uh, I always sent Afonja there because he knew that it's not going to defeat them. And the, the rule is that you kill yourself as an as an for if you can be, if you cannot. Fellow victorious, which is quite great. And so this book itself is is super interesting to me personally. But I'm also very fascinated with history. I think a part of history that I'm more fascinated with, which I hope you're going to write about, is the 1820s when the when the empire finally dispersed. Everybody became almost independent. Ibadan became a guard and the story of Ibadan really, really becoming defender of the Yorubas. Mm. Uh, um, and, and where the power actually lied with the Ibadan, uh, Ibadan yeah. chiefs. And, and Koromi as a personality, uh, the, the Kirichi war, uh, the Ekite Parapo, Bukidengbe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish you're going to be writing books like that again and say, Koromi the rice, Koromi the fall, Bukidengbe <laughs> the rise. Okay, <laughs> uh, you know, oh no, that was passionate guys, but, but people like... Um, I talk about these things and I say, you know, very simple things. If you listen to an Owe or an Oduifa or just a saying, and you look at the history behind that saying, you realize that we have so much to write about that we have not written about. So one of the things we're doing for Afonja is to take it 
on stage. So we're, we're going to be doing stage next year. You're going to be doing stage? I yes. was hoping you're going to be a movie. We're, we're going to do stage and take it around next year. And there, there's also conversations with two of the very most prolific directors to make this film. It's going to be an expensive film. Because, because they love horses. It's right. a period piece. Yeah, and you have and to get a look at horses and all of that. <laughs> you can fix that with CGI and all those things, okay. but it's it's going to, it's not going to be cheap. So we're working on that stage will come first. It's easier to achieve a couple of things on stage. At the launch, we're launching it on the 27th, formally formally launching it on the 27th of January 2019. 2019 and we're going to have a mini stage play on that day. Um hopefully we'll be able to do the first full stage adaptation at Easter. And then take it around the world. Hopefully, we'll come to England as well to see you guys. That'll be all lovely. Um, back to what you asked about. Well, there's, there's a lot more to write about. I talked about the fact that you asked people, do you know Kiriji War? They don't know. Do you know the war, be- the anglo Ijebu War? They don't know. Do you know uh, Ogunjalumi? They don't know. Do you, you know many of those things? Do you know how the Ibadan stopped the Iloran cavalry? They don't know. Do you know how, what was what, this? Owipole was destroyed. And moved to Abel, and moved to Abel Kuta. They don't know. Um, do you know that Shagamo is a recent town? A lot of the towns that we look at as towns that have been around for a long time, they're actually towns that were started at the fall of the Oyo Empire when people moved from the north down. Many, many towns like that. Abel like Kuta, Ibadan, yeah. Ibadan itself. It's fascinating. It's good to ask you that. Where did the Ebas come from? Where were they living during the empire reign? Are they under the were they under the empires as well? Ibadan was, for example, an initially an Egba town. It was an Egba village. Ibadan was an Egba village. Yes, Ibadan was an Egba village. As so, the original people are living in that area, where Egba. Then the your your warriors came, came to cover. Exactly. Oh, interesting. So the Egbas were living in that Ibadan in area. In that area, and they were like a mini tribe or what? Yes, they were. They were subdivision. They were not. You know. Those in the days of empire, the southern people they looked at them like, who are these ones? So they were not really in, the only thing they that their area was useful for was taking trade to the to, um, to the coast to the coasts and, and, and you, raiding them and getting slaves. Exactly, that was what they were there for. There was an apart from that, Oyo didn't really expand in that if you looked at Oyo's expansion it was more to the north Bariba conquered the Bariba conquered the Takba those were the places where they saw and civilized and to the west as well to Dahomey to Dahomey but Dahomey's conquest was for the slave trade so that they could get to the coast interesting after that they moved to um, Badagri you know all of that right. so it was an interesting thing at earlier on those southern people they, were, they called them the Ibo Ibo and they were not people that were reckoned with by, uh, by the Yorubas. It was after Yorubas moved into the south that... that is, yeah, that's fascinating you said that. That During the Kiriji War, you have this Yorubas versus Ekiti. Because people don't call the Ekiti Nijesha Yorubas. Then there was no... There was just... Yoruba, your yours are the Yorubas. And then there is Ijebu, Egba, Ekiti, Ijesha. Even the Ife people. I don't... So, I find it fascinating that everybody's now called Yorubas, mm-hmm. but... Before 1860s, they were just they were different. different. But they were how do I put this now? So, if you think about it, the formation of identity usually happens. So Oyo was 
what everybody called Yoruba at that time. And what we call Central Yoruba today is actually a derivative of Oyo's dialect. So the Yoruba we speak all around is a derivative of Oyo's dialect of Yoruba. All those other guys, everybody was from the lineage of Ududua from Ife. So everybody claimed up to places in Benin Republic, K2 in Benin Republic, for example, were all places that claimed descent from Ife. Including the Ijebos? Incl- all of them. Is it, it, because I've always thought Ijebos are from somewhere else. No, no, no. Everybody. Everybody claimed descent from Ife. And one of the ways you then looked at it, there were different grades. So there were people that had caps that had them be- beaded caps those were not very many or your um k2 you mean the kings that had beaded caps. beaded caps there are seven seven of them with beaded beaded, be- caps. beaded crowns exactly below them you would have guys that work and so up to all the grades like that so they were all part of the ife family but they were not referred to as Yoruba. Interesting. If you look at Oyo, the way Oyo was divided, it was divided into four. There was a place in Oyo called the Metropolitan Province that surrounded Oyo that had the Kui and all those places. That was the heartland of Oyo before it began to expand into all those other places. Hmm. You mentioned those beaded caps. Let me see if I can. My memory can serve me well now, so people should not judge me if I don't if I don't get them all of them correctly. The seven, <laughs> the seven beaded caps. Yeah, yeah, it's almost a war, right? Okay. So you have the Onishabe of Shabe, Alaketu of Ketu. These two towns are in Benin Republic. Benin Republic today. Alafin of Oyo, Alake of Eba. Was it? Wasn't? It wasn't. Ola Orongun of of Ila. Ila. About Benin. Is it? I'm not sure. Was it? I thought it was one of the sons of Urudua. No, it was a was was a grandson of Oromia. Okay. Or a son of Oromia, so it was a grandson. So who am I missing? Olowu of Oromia. Oh. Is only Koyi part of them? I I I I, so I, I, don't, want, I don't want to say it from my memory because I'm I've not got sure. Six. I don't want to start so it's only one. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. So Alake wasn't part, but Onikoyi would have been one because Onikoyi was the most senior chief. Outside Oyo in the metropolitan province, right? So Nikoi would have been. Sure. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned the. So Oni of Ife wasn't part of them. No, he was a priest. No, he wasn't. And he wasn't well, an imperial king. He was. It wasn't an imperial. So, but they refer to the current Oni as imperial, which I find laughable. Nah, that's that's a colonial contraption. Or oh, our. That's stuff. a. I mean, that's a colonial contraption that was reinforced by Olowo to counterbalance the Alafi at that time. We all know that Olowo deposed an Alafi mm-hmm. in 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 the period and all that. So yeah, that's politics. Yes, and we still see it today. Where, for example, what Ajimobi is doing in the Badon, where he's elevating people that are ballets to be first class chiefs and all that. Politicians do all that, bastardize. But those that know history know what is real the only person that was an imperial majesty in yoruba land was the alafi of oyo he was the only one that ran an empire every other person never ran an empire you're only an imperial majesty if you if you had an empire, empire. Uh, it's interesting because uh, even um samuel johnson referred to the the only of if as impressed and even during the kiriji war he was siding against the yoruba <laughs> He, he was, was siding against 
for some for some interest because they're laughing worse was but I think worse hiding against the Ibadans. Ibadans, not um not Yoruba not Yorubas. It was, okay, they call it Yoruba civil war, right? But yeah. it was hiding against the Ibadan. Ibadan, yeah, Ibadan wasn't the definition of Yoruba at that Okay, time. right. Everybody was everybody was Yorubas. Ekitis were Yorubas as yes, well. Absolutely. Interesting. I'm but a Kitia, by the way. I know, I know that you're Ekitis, but it's just for historical context. This is quite good. And again, I know you I'm going to get you back again okay. onto this show. Uh, this has been a very, very good conversation. I hope there will be a sequel to this. There will be. And uh, you're going to go through that history. So Afondala has reason will fall. <laughs> yeah, people who so read the book, you see that they, you actually left it at a cliffhanger. Yeah. And, and it's, so, it's so obvious that it's going to be uh, the next one. But I hope that you're going to write more about some of the fascinating characters after uh, that. Absolutely. Like Konomi, uh, women find it really fascinating. I really want to actually see a movie about Konomi, actually. There have been uh, some low, below budget, but there have been some. There's okay. even been a, an Afonja film, low budget as well. Right. And I would like to see stories about Efusheto Anura people like uh, Ogumola as well and Latusisha and, and that 16 year civil war uh, I would like to see that and, and how the Yoruba kingdom evolved to what it is today mm. um, but super I think we need to give tribute to people like Reverend Johnson who actually gave a fantastic historical account of that time some people will fight you for that why? there's the is that your man? yeah so there's the um, what's it called there's the view that he wrote with a very heavy bias towards Oyo. Yes, he did. Which I agree. I agree too. He also wrote a bit judgmentally because he was a Christian. And yes. So one of the things I did in my book, for example, was not to refer to the worship that the people had as idol worship or, or fetish. In, fetish yeah. or in, for them, that was worship. Mm-hmm. You know, in his book, you will see that he will refer to them in that in that way. Yes, he was. That's one. And he so, also some. He was a bit Islamophobic as well. Yeah. So my view is to read different sources, look for oral sources. A lot. A lot of people ignore oral sources, and oral sources have they, 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 they've turned out to be a treasure trove for me. And by the time you listen to various sides, I read white people talking about Oyo. I read Reverend Johnson, I read 20, um, Professor Falola, Robert Sidney, went to speak with a couple of people in Igboho and all of those types of things just to get a balanced view of things as much as I could. And it, it was an interesting experience. But who were the contemporaries of Johnson, black historians of that time that wrote, that could have given a different perspective? Because the other people that wrote were Townsend and other or Europeans who were yeah, from the European said, perspective. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was... One of the reasons I liked, I liked Johnson's account was because he was a Yoruba man. So he understood some nuances that the white guys would not understand in the way he expressed certain aspects of the culture and tradition and way of life at that time. So he, he is a valuable source, very valuable source. But also the white guys recorded the history slightly differently. Guys that came after Johnson, um, people like Robert Sidney and co, they interrogated and found a bit more things. Um, people like Professor Tony Falola have, people who say Professor Tony Falola, for example, has an Ibado bias. This is impossible to write without some bias, mm-hmm. you know. But what you anybody that is reading should do is to compare sources. There are some things that come. For example, we know if you never ruled over an empire, mm-hmm. 
That's not a bias. That's a that's fact. A historical fact. That's a historical fact. But it's well respected. Nobody ever exactly. tried to fight, conquer Ifer. Ifer always been respected and, and revered. Absolutely. And the only of Ifer is the priest and the custodian of the of, of, of the, the of the of the shrine of Oromia. religious treasures. You know, there's some things that are factual. Was there? For example, did, was there a man called Afonja that lived? Absolutely. Everybody knows that. Was there an Alimi, Abdul Salami, who became, who succeeded him, and all of those things? Absolutely. So there, there's history and all that. Was Sholagberu killed by beheading? He was killed by beheading. Um, I remember I remember some descendants of Sholagberu attacked over that. that no, he wasn't. But Oh, it, so there's some descendants of Sholagberu now in... Contemporary There's times. a professor Shalagberry in Lasso, for example. Ooh. Oh, so the son is still, and he was, and the, what was the attack? They're, they're contemporary for jazz as well. Yeah, I knew former, one Afonja. I thought it was just like the nickname. No, no, no. Former, the former chairman of First Bank is an Afonja. Um, Prince Ajibola Afonja is an Afonja. So the, the fact there's a family, there's a there's a an Afonja family association that are not too far from me, Lauren. If you, if you go to YouTube, you'll see them talk. Or what year you, was this, by the way? Afonja, what year? What year was Afonja? Was it 17, late 1800s? Early. Oh, it's early, early, early 1700? Um, no, not 17, it was 1800. 1800. But 1800, 1830 was when Ibadan was formed. So it must be like... It was early, it's late, 18, late 1700s, early. Because um, Abiodun died towards the end of the 1700s. Right. So all of this happened... Late 1700s, early 1800s. Another fascinating thing, I think somebody should do the, um, research on the life expectancy of the people of those times. I think it's short. It, it, it was short, especially... But it was longer in the days of empire. In my right, view. okay. But when empire collapsed and everybody started fighting each other, uh, it was... Yeah, because you look at the succession of people, kings, of, of the rulers were like short, short life. And I just, it caught me that this is because they were fighting, there was a lot of beheadings, there was a lot of slavery. And then they do hard work, so they look old at mm-hmm. 50 or 40, so you think a 50-year-old person, a 40-year-old person would have grandchildren, for example. Yeah. So you think that's the Agbalagba, that's the elder. But the guy probably died in his 50s, and you think the eldest person is in his 50s, so the life experience will be <laughs> short, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> Cool. I agree with that. I mean, there was no modern medicine. There were many things that were missing. Yeah. I, I'm I'm usually fascinated about how they lived. So I looked at I look at um, images. Thankfully, there's some excavation going on in Oyoili right now. Very very interested in seeing what they turn up, especially evidence around cavalry. I'm very interested in that, so I'm following it closely. There's a lot of work to be done. I'm hoping that all of this will spark interest. Think about it, Kirujuo. I. I asked people, I asked if there's any museum where I could see the weaponry. Mm. You know, just to have a sense of how they fought. There's nothing like that. It will be probably in people's collections. Probably in personal collections and all of that. So those are the things, that's the work that still needs to get done. I should be able to say I want to study Kirijiwa and look at the weapons, look at the battle tactics, look at, you know, all of those types of things. But they're not... A 16-year war, I mean, will not have been a small play. There's a man from Illinois, I watched him on YouTube, that was talking about, if you read the letters that the um, Lagos Consul exchanged, you know, you will see the size, they were not small armies, 85,000 people on one side, 50,000 here, 50,000 there. So they were, those were not small. Um, What's the size of the current Nigerian army? 200 and something thousand. So people were fighting in a place that is smaller than the South and they were 
80,000 here, 50,000 there, 40, it was a major thing. But and Ibarron is fascinating though. They were fighting three wars at one point. They were fighting fronts. the Christian war, they were fighting if, the Northern Lauren, and they were fighting the Jebus. If the British did not come, Ibarron would have re enacted a version of the Oyo Empire. I'm, I think so, because they were, they were held. Convinced. I think the Akitis really stopped them. Because they were fighting a three-frontal war. And the, Akiti, um, the, the there were supplies coming from Europeans, guns and all of those types of things that Anibadon was stifled of those. And they were still able to hold a three-frontal war for 16 years that they did not lose. It had to be stalemated, a, stalemated and then some, somebody broke out peace. That's how powerful Anibadon was relative to the surrounding people. If there was no white people, Anibadon uh, would have... Anibadon would have been there. They would have reenacted a version of the Oyo Empire. And it's so funny, they were still loyal to their laughing, even though the control becomes the laughing, yeah. but they were still loyal to the, to the... Yeah. Super interesting. We could, you and I, we have a lot of in common. We <laughs> talk about this for ages. I know we're going to have more conversation as well. Absolutely. But where can people get catch you if they want to follow you or, 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 or read more from you? I'm on Twitter at Tunilaya. The compilation of a lot of my work is on the website we did for Afonjad the Rise. It's www.afonjadurise.com. If you go there, you see a lot of my other work, where to get them. Some of them that are free, you can download them. I did a work on um, the Ahosi, the Dahomey Amazons. It's something that I encourage people to read as well. I have a reading in Abuja this weekend on the 17th, Salamander Cafe, 4 p.m. if you're there. On the 17th of November. Of November. Then, uh, this, this episode this, would have, would have would I, Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, those are the places. And you can buy the book of Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's on... I actually bought my copy from Amazon. From I was Amazon. hoping you bring a, a signed one for me today, but maybe at that time. Uh, but I bought mine from Amazon, Amazon. Uh, on Kindle and I read it, I read it on the plane and, and it was I, so I, easy. And I should have. That's, that's, that's fine. We can, we can fix that. <laughs> We can't fix that. Um, yeah, so those are the places you can find me. I'm, on, I'm mainly on Twitter. I'm still one of those old people that I'm not going on to Instagram properly. <laughs> interesting, interesting. It's good to have you, and I really enjoy your book. Good Thank you very much. Too. Thank you very much, Dotto. This episode is brought to you by Flutterwave. Flutterwave Air banks and businesses build secure and seamless payment solutions for their customers. It is the trusted payment partner for over 30,000 businesses that operate globally, including Flywire, Arakeair, Uber, Jumia, SME Market Hub, Booking.com, amongst many others. To discover how Flutterwave can help your business, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.